This morning, we explore more of Paul's letter to the Philippians, where he is guiding them on how to live a life worthy of Christ. Listen then for how Paul connects their relationship with Christ to their relationship with one another. From Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 17. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel and in no way frightened by those opposing you. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation, and this is God's doing, for God has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you were having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. May God bless this reading to our understanding. I'm grateful to Reverend Tyler Heston, who filled in the pulpit last Sunday on short notice while I was out sick. Um, Reverend Heston did a great job, and I appreciate your affirmation of his sermon. Many of you sent me that. Um, I had the, the joy of worshiping with you online, and I appreciate your well wishes for my good health. I'm feeling great. I'm thinking this morning about an old film, Castaway, where Tom Hanks won the best actor for his leading role. Tom, you may remember, plays a FedEx employee who is the only survivor of a plane crash in the South Pacific. Tom then is trying desperately to survive, living on this deserted island, taking refuge in a cave, scavenging the island to see what might be edible, and he finds some useful items for survival that float up on shore, packages that fell when the FedEx plane crashed, and he goes through the packages, and one of the things he finds from the downed airplane is something that becomes essential for his survival. It's a volleyball. <laughs> it's a volleyball, and he makes a face on the volleyball, and do you remember what he names it? Wilson, yes. And Wilson becomes his constant com companion, and finally he figures no one's coming, I'm gonna have to get off of this island, so he builds a raft, and he gets on the raft, and Wilson gets on the raft with him, but the water gets a little rocky, and Wilson slips off and looks like Wilson's going to be lost. And he reaches out for Wilson, and he says, Wilson, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry, Wilson. You see, that movie captured our human longing 
to live in community. We are not made to live on deserted islands. We need a human face to companion us. We need community. And yet, <laughs> community can push us and challenge us and make us terribly uncomfortable. Anyone who has ever attended school can recall being assigned a group project. Oh my goodness, my grade rides upon whether or not my group does a good job? I mean, what about the student who doesn't show up to the group meeting or shows up but hasn't read any of the book? I mean, it, it can be stressful. I remember when I was a junior in high school, I was in a class, the class was actually two classes, so worth two credits, and a huge part of our grade was resting on how well we did on the group project. There were five girls assigned to my team, and we spent months preparing our project was to make a presentation to the rest of the class, some 50 or 70 other students, on the topic of Japanese culture. We worked for months, and then we decided that we would host a Japanese dinner for our class, the entire class. We met out in what we called the shacks along the side of the school, because our school was so big, we didn't have enough classroom space for everybody. And the night before the presentation, the five girls and I, we gathered at my home, and we made Japanese meatballs to feed the entire class. And then on the day of the project, we all put on real silk Japanese kimonos that one of the other students' fathers had gotten on his travels. And we went into the classroom and each of us plugged in our electric wok. And we started stir frying those meatballs until just like that, the fuse blew. Well, you know that group projects are messy and unpredictable. And to this day, I cannot remember what grade we got on the group project, but my mom reminded me for years, and I mean for decades, that her kitchen was never quite the same after this so-called group project. Now, perhaps you can recall a time when you were involved in teamwork that was exhilarating and created great joy and synergy. Maybe you went on one of those church mission trips and you built a cinder block wall, twisting the rebar by hand, and at the end of the week you could look back and go, wow, look what we did together across cultural and language barriers. Or maybe you were on a sports team that no one thought would even make it through the season, but you ended up in the semifinals. But sometimes teamwork is aggravating, even maddening, can you remember a time when you joined your efforts with the efforts of a larger community and you just became completely frustrated and disillusioned? Maybe, maybe you were a part of a family business and the business turned sour and left bruised feelings and empty bank accounts. Or maybe you were part of a homes association, you wanted to help your neighborhood, and then you found out that everybody was bickering and stomping off because the homeowners in your neighborhood disagreed on the next steps for community advancement. Paul writes to those of us who are Christian, and he offers a piece of guidance. Strive side by side. 
Now, Paul's larger topic in this letter to the Philippian people is how they should live their lives, how they might conduct themselves as Christians in a world that is not always completely hospitable to the Christian way of life. Paul's image that he shares with them is an athletic one about a race, strive, side by side, or, or some translators put it, stand on duty together. He warns them, don't be intimidated by the surrounding culture. Literally, he says to them, don't be frightened. Don't let them stampede you. How can we then function so completely side by side with one spirit and one soul that we are able to unite and represent the one spirit of the living Christ? Sometimes it seems easier just to do it ourselves, go it alone, walk away, rather than to walk shoulder to shoulder with other people. The author, James K.A. Smith, is one of my favorites, and in one of his books, he writes about how friendship is not just important because we want friends, but friendship, he says, is an essential part of the Christian faith. He says that we all have various kinds of friends, and there's this one friend who can tell you what to do, give you solid advice. But there's this other kind of friend. This friend knows what you need, but loves you enough to let you struggle for your soul, but stands by with a bandage and a map. What an amazing friend that would be for each of us to have, one who will let us struggle from the depths of our own soul, but stands by us with a bandage and a map. What relationships might be calling for your attention as you begin this new year? Is it a relationship with a friend or a family member or a colleague or a neighbor, someone that might benefit from you walking side by side them? Or maybe there's a community, a group, a church, a club, a small group, an organization that you believe in that you could intentionally walk alongside of. And if you were able to choose that path, what of Christ might be revealed? What joy and synergy might come about in your own experience with that group? Paul asks us not to walk ahead of each other, but shoulder to shoulder, striving for that which seems like it's beyond us, but is also deeply within us, the goodness, the grace, and the love of Christ. Live your life in a manner worthy of Christ, Paul writes. Live your life in a manner worthy of Christ. And he insists that this happens only side by side. Yet, this partnership idea, it's not just a good idea for Paul. It is essential if we will reveal God among us. Paul must have known that we might think, hmm, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be a part of a group project. Because Paul writes to the people in Philippi, knowing that they are tempted to give up, to withdraw into a private faith, to occupy themselves with individualistic goals, with selfish concerns, he says. What gets in the way of us striving side by side? 
Paul, when he writes this letter, knowing that he will encounter their resistance, Paul folds up the letter and then passes it through the bars of the prison cell where he has been incarcerated, held captive, charged with a capital offense. He says to them from behind bars, I am with you, I am empowering you, I am in relationship with you, and I am sensing your courage and your presence in my life as I sit here behind bars. He knows that it is risky for them to follow Christ, it is risky for him to follow Christ, but they may do it if they strive in a deep-spirited friendship or partnership. Paul invites all who will follow Christ to let go of just a little tiny bit of me to become partners with those around us for the sake of Christ. Paul's letter from prison is not about how to be a Christian. It is about how to be a Christian community. Fast forward to another man who will write a letter from prison encouraging the community. Move forward through the centuries with me to another Christian in Germany during World War II, a Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor who will be executed by the Nazis the day before World War II ends because he dared to risk living a life worthy of Christ. From prison, Bonhoeffer writes, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. And then Bonhoeffer folds up his letter and passes it through the bars of prison. Fast forward another decade or two, and travel with me to Birmingham, where Dr. Martin Luther King will write from inside jail. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught, he writes, in an inescapable network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. These words he will write and pass through the bars of the prison. Thankfully, you and I will unlikely be imprisoned for our Christian faith, but all of us will discover that humility is a necessary step towards the human partnership of walking shoulder to shoulder with other Christians. In order to know Christ, we must first know our need for each other. Last week, I read a magazine article by one of my very favorite authors, a Pulitzer Prize winner named Tracy Kidder. He writes a lot about science and the medical world, and this was a true story about a physician in Boston named Dr. O'Connell. Dr. O'Connell was an incredibly gifted student graduating from Notre Dame as a as the salutatorian, and then he went to Cambridge where he studied philosophy, and then at age 30 he came back and became a student at Harvard Medical School. And when he finished, he did a residency at Mass General in Boston and won a prestigious fellowship to 
pursue his study of oncology at Sloan Kettering in New York. But then his career took a detour. He was asked by the head of Mass General in Boston to take one year before he started that prestigious fellowship in New York, just take one year and help us get this new program off the ground. We have a grant. It, it's a program to offer high quality medical care to people in Boston who are living in the tent settlements on the edge of town or sleeping in the doorway on the way to the ATM. He then began one year of work reaching out to Boston's homeless. His first day on the job, he was met by a group of stern nurses who eyed Dr. O'Connell with suspicion. They had already figured out the way to treat homeless folks who needed medical care, and they assumed that in all his studies, Dr. O'Connell did not know what to do. One nurse pulled him aside on the very first day and explained to him that if he was going to succeed in this job, he would have to let the nurses retrain him. The retraining began as he put away his stethoscope and entered a room where the homeless men and women sat with their feet soaking in plastic buckets of water. There, he knelt and sat at the feet of those who lived on the streets. He heard their stories. He earned their trust. He looked at their feet, and in caressing their feet, he could begin to see some of their medical problems. It was a humbling day, and the job suited Dr. O'Connell, and he ended up falling in love with the organization and with the job, but most especially with the patients, many of whom he called his classics, who had lived on the streets for a long time and would only come out when the van showed up if Dr. O'Connell was there that night. Today, Dr. O'Connell is 70 years old, and he still works for the same organization He's still there providing medical care for Boston's homeless. When they started that first year, they served 1,246 patients. And this past year, they served 11,000 patients in 30 clinics with a budget of 60 million. Not long ago, Dr. O'Connell was himself a patient in the hospital. He was in isolation. Even his wife was not allowed to visit him he woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a man seated by his bed. It was Billy, one of his classics. Billy had been living on the street for decades, and Billy said when he saw Dr. O'Connell open his eyes, well, we've been wor really worried about you, and I thought I'd come in and check on you. And Dr. O'Connell was trying to make sense of this. I mean, how is it that this man snuck past hospital security? How did he make it past the nurse's station? And then he remembered that he had taught Billy and Billy's friends how critically important it is for a person's healing that when they are in the hospital, someone will come to visit. And then he remembered how almost magical these homeless men are at working their way around the rules of the system. So he didn't even bother to ask Billy 
how'd you get in here? Because about that time, he realized, I'm lonely, and I sure did need a visitor today. 